Hi guys, this is Bill and Harry from the True Crime Sisters podcast, and we wanted to tell you about our favourite streaming service, Hey You. Hey You is the place to stream true crime docu-series whenever and wherever you want. Piece together real-life crimes with a brand new library of content, now streaming on Hey You. Explore the disappearances of Natalie Holloway and Maura Murray. Gain insight into the psyche of one of history's most infamous serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Delve into puzzling cases where the defendants claim their innocence with falsely convicted host Brian Banks. Then join Soledad O'Brien as she pulls back the curtain on a wide range of shocking cases, including OJ Simpson, the Slenderman attacks and the Wonderland murders. Track these real-life cases and many more on Hey You. Head to heyyou.com or download the app today to start your 30-day free trial. Hey You, reality on demand. Hi guys, welcome to the True Crime Sisters podcast. We hope you're all doing well. Before we get started, we've just decided to make a couple of changes that will hopefully line up with the feedback and constructive criticism that we've been receiving. We've had a lot of people asking for a bit more consistency, and for us to do that, we've actually decided it might be best for us to release episodes fortnightly rather than weekly. Moving to fortnightly episodes um, should allow us to be a bit more consistent and also hopefully produce longer, more in-depth episodes without burning out. So hopefully that's sort of what you guys are looking for. As for Patreon, nothing will be changing. There'll still be an extra monthly episode for our Patreons to thank them for their support. And on that note, we want to thank some of them. So thank you to Lulu, Rebecca, Avalon, Kylie, Emily, Jade, Leah, Alex, Claire and Adam. We really do appreciate your support, guys. And with that, I'll pass you over to Bill to get us started on this week's case. Thanks, Harry. This week we are discussing a case from New Zealand that took place in 1989. If you find this episode interesting, we highly recommend the book Missing Pieces by Ian Wishart, which we read in preparation for this episode. Heidi Parkinen was born on the 14th of October 1967 into a big family in Sweden. She was the second youngest of five children and the only girl. She began primary school at the age of seven, which is the average age for Swedish children, and graduated high school at 19 years of age. She dreamt of going to university and studying to become a kindergarten teacher, although she decided to take some time off work to travel and spend time with her boyfriend, Sven Urban Hoagland, known as Urban to friends and family. Urban grew up in the same area as Heidi in Sweden, which was named Storfors and is 225 kilometres from the capital of Sweden, Stockholm. Urban was born on the 2nd of December 1965, making him two years older than Heidi. He was an outdoorsy type of guy who enjoyed nature walks and camping trips with his older brothers. Urban's brother, Stefan, would later recall how much Urban loved hiking, fishing and camping for long periods of time, sometimes up to 10 days at a time. Urban wasn't one to take big risks on his outdoor adventures. 
he would always make sure that he had everything he would need in an emergency situation. After high school, he completed 10 months in a military training program. Heidi and Irvin went to the same high school, but neither knew each other at the time due to their age gap. They met when they were both working at the Storefors Village supermarket. Initially, Irvin noticed Heidi for the same reasons that everyone did, her beautiful Nordic good looks. She was no stranger to a compliment. Irvin noticed her working at the cosmetics counter at the supermarket and the two began a relationship. In September 1986, the couple went on a holiday to Spanish island Mallorca where they got engaged. The couple exchanged a pair of beautiful gold bands with the other's name engraved on the inside. When they returned back to Sweden, they began living together. It wasn't long until the travel bug kicked in again and the idea came up to travel to Australia. On the 16th of September 1988, their families dropped them at the Stockholm airport bright and early in the morning. The couple took with them two large green backpacks, a small blue carry-on bag, as well as their camping equipment, which included sleeping bags, outdoor and fishing equipment. They flew from Stockholm to Copenhagen, then on to Los Angeles before taking an Air New Zealand flight through Rarotonga and Tahiti to Auckland. From Auckland, they transferred to a Brisbane flight. The couple didn't have the best of luck when they got to Brisbane. They didn't seem to be able to catch a break. Not long after arriving, Urban ended up being hospitalised for two weeks with an infection in Alice Springs with a fever that reached 41 degrees Celsius. Following that... Heidi almost stepped on a snake, which left her feeling very frightened of Australia's notorious wildlife. They then stayed in a backpacker's hostel, where they felt really uncomfortable with the other guests. They felt as though some of the other guests were very strange, shady and deceptive. They were happy when it was time to leave Australia and make their way back to Auckland, where they would have the opportunity to explore New Zealand. They arrived in Auckland on the 5th of December 1988. They quickly realised they would need a car and ended up buying an old one, a white Subaru with a distinctive bull bar for 1750 off another Swedish tourist. They spent December and the New Year period driving through the coasts of Auckland and Northland. Throughout their adventure, Heidi wrote many letters home to her family in Sweden to keep them up to date on her and Urban's adventures. One example of a letter came from Heidi on the 7th of December 1988 from Auckland. We've now come to New Zealand. We haven't decided on a route yet, but we are staying here in Auckland some five to six days and then we'll try to get further north. Everybody we've been talking to in Australia has said that everything is a lot more expensive here in New Zealand. We got very surprised today when we went out shopping and found that the prices were about the same as in Australia. Some things were even cheaper. Among other things, we bought some mints that cost 15 kroner, which is $3, a kilogram. We bought potatoes that are a lot nicer and tastier than at home. Soon we are taking a bus to the city and we are going to a market. We may go to the zoo. They borrowed two pandas all the way from China. Maybe because we are here. After that, we are visiting the world's largest underwater aquarium, 
we'll see how much we've got time for. So just your very basic mm. letters home. Yep. After a final letter on the 2nd of April, 1989, the letters from Heidi and Urban stopped coming and their families began to grow worried. They made contact with Interpol, who contacted police in Auckland. On Friday the 26th of May, 1989, the Herald newspaper ran a story about the two Swedish tourists. A car belonging to a missing Swedish couple has been abandoned in Mount Eden. The discovery worries Auckland police, who were contacted by Interpol officers on Wednesday after a request from relatives. A picture of a car also accompanied the article. The car was the distinctive white Subaru with the bull bar in the front that the Swedish couple had bought back in December. It had been abandoned in Watling Street, Mount Eden, in Auckland, on the 14th of April, 1989. Inside the car... Police discovered personal documents belonging to Heidi and Urban, which included a travel itinerary that revealed that they were supposed to have left for the Cook Islands on the 20th of April 1989. With this knowledge, police made contact with Air New Zealand, who the couple was supposed to have flown with, but the airline confirmed that neither Heidi nor Urban had made it onto the flight. After the article in the Herald was published, a special task force named Operation Stockholm was assembled to investigate the couple's disappearance. Meanwhile, a farmer whose farm was located at the top of Tararu Creek Road, just north of the Thames Township, called his local police station. 45-year-old Edward Colbert had heard about the missing Swedish couple through the media. When he was working on his farm, he had come across a name tag with Heidi's name on it. He said, quote, the tag was hanging on the fence to the right of the stile at the top of the road. I can remember that it was on a bit of string dangling on the fence. Prior to hearing about the couple in the media, he had pulled the tag from the fence and thrown it onto the ground. But when he realised its significance, he immediately rushed back to the fence and was relieved to find the tag still there. While he was searching for the tag, he also came across some men's and women's clothing. With this new information, police quickly assembled a group of volunteers and emergency workers to conduct a search and rescue operation. At the time, this was the largest land-based search in New Zealand's history. The group met in Thames to search for Heidi and Urban and anything that could have belonged to them. As well as this, a team of police detectives began an area canvas conducting door-to-door -door knocks and taking notes to try and ascertain whether anyone in the area had seen anything. Once information about the missing couple appeared in the media, witnesses started coming forward with possible sightings of Heidi and Urban. Two staff members from the Thames Hair Salon contacted police. They stated that a couple matching Heidi and Urban's description had come to the salon for a haircut on Friday the 7th of April. Marilyn Round believed she had cut Heidi's long blonde hair into a shoulder-length bob, and 16-year-old Paula Johnson believed that she had given Urban a short haircut. Many Thames residents believed that they had seen the couple's distinctive Subaru in the area. Harry Goodwin, Jennifer Gladwin and their friends were in the area on the morning of Sunday the 9th of April 1989, looking at properties for sale, 
when they noticed a white Subaru sitting on the side of the road. Later that afternoon, they were driving back past. The car was still there. At this point, they stopped to have a look, as one of the men was in the market for a new car, and the Subaru had a for sale sign for $3,000. One of the men got out of the car and pressed down on the bull bar to test the car's suspension. He noted that someone had left a lot of their personal property inside the car. This stood out to him as he thought how easy it would be for somebody to steal it. He had the impression that someone had left the car there to go for a walk in the bush, leaving some camping gear in the car. So now that police felt confident that the couple had gotten haircuts in Thames on Friday the 7th and their car had been seen in the same area on Sunday the 9th, they wondered how it had then ended up 200 kilometres away in Watling Street, Auckland on the 14th of April. Meanwhile, the families of Heidi and Irvin were extremely worried about the couple's whereabouts and voiced their concerns to the media. The couple's fathers, Yuho Parkinen and Hans Hoagland, became the media spokespeople for the families. One of the early police theories about what may have happened to the couple was the possibility that they may have been killed after stumbling across a cannabis operation. The Coromandel countryside, where the couple were exploring, was well known for housing many hidden cannabis crops. One witness, 21-year-old Mark Tonks from Nelson, confirmed that he had seen a white Subaru matching the couple's car description in Tararu Creek Road, near Thames, on the 12th of April. Tonks was a drug informant and had supposedly heard a drug dealer talking about the couple's disappearance, and he wasn't the only informant to come forward with similar information. Police also received information early in the investigation about four hoons, which is like hooligans in Australian, seen driving the car through the Auckland suburb of Wanihunga at approximately 8pm on Friday the 14th of April 1989. Police officers had seen the car being driven by four men, one of who had dreadlocks, and the police had actually done a QVR on it, which means query vehicle registration, which is where they look up the details of the car to see if there's any outstanding information about it. But they didn't end up pulling it over because it didn't come up as stolen. Mm. So this information confirmed that the vehicle was definitely in the Auckland area by the 14th of April. With news that the vehicle had been seen in Tararoo Creek Road, coupled with the knowledge that a farmer from Tararoo Creek Road had found Heidi's belongings, police knew that this was the area they should focus their initial investigation on. Tararoo Creek Track was scoured by investigators and locals for any trace of the couple, but initially nothing was found. For a period of time, police started to believe that maybe the case wasn't foul play, and perhaps the couple had just gotten lost off the treacherous hiking trail. This was not a trail for amateurs. It is reportedly very swampy and steep. It was also home to many old abandoned mine shafts from the gold rush, which were hundreds of metres deep. Following this, the Herald newspaper reported, There is a growing belief amongst police involved in the case that the couple may have gone for a walk in the Coromandel Bush at the end of the Harare Valley and became lost in the maze of the tracks that crisscrossed the ranges. Police reached out to the public 
and urged whoever was seen driving the car in Auckland on the 14th of April to come forwards. They thought that maybe the car had just been stolen and dumped by a group of youths. It wasn't long before two witnesses would come forward and change the entire direction of the case. Two men who were actually part of the search party were frequent hikers in the Tararu Creek area. John Cassidy and Mel North had actually been hiking through the area on Saturday the 8th of April 1989 when the young couple was believed to have gone missing. When they came to an area known as Crosby's Clearing, they had come across a man and a woman who were setting up camp. The couple was described as follows. The man looked partially Maori, with a strong build in his early 30s, and the woman was blonde, European-looking, and in her 20s. Crosby's clearing was approximately a three- to five-hour walk from the Tararu Creek Road car park, where the Swedish couple had left their car. Immediately, police linked the description of the blonde European woman as being similar to Heidi. Mel North and John Cassidy made their statement to the Thames Police on the 31st of May and had a good idea of what they had seen, as they actually kept a diary of their hikes. They had entered the bush at 5.59am and made their way towards Crosby's clearing. At 3.12pm, nine hours into their hike, they came across the man and the woman in the bush. They stopped and spoke to the couple for approximately 13 minutes before continuing on their walk again at 3.25pm. They remembered that the couple had a tent up and had indicated that they were planning on camping there for the night. The couple told John and Mel that they had hiked in from Tararu Creek Road and that they were from Auckland. John and Mel described the man as early 30s, part Maori, 5'11 in height with a strong build, looked like the outdoorsy type, clean-shaven and wearing boots, denim shorts and a dark top. They described the woman as mid to late 20s with a European look. She had light blonde hair straight down to her collar and was sitting down. They didn't believe that the woman had moved or said anything the whole time they were there. They had communicated only with the man. The woman had a fair complexion and looked very well groomed. She didn't look like she fit in as a hiker. The men felt as though the man was an experienced camper as he didn't seem to have any issues pitching the tent. In John and Mel's first statement, there was no implication that the woman they saw was Heidi, and as the two men had been heavily involved in the search party, it isn't a stretch to think that they would have recognised the woman as Heidi upon seeing her picture. The lead investigator of the case was Detective John Hughes, who was beginning to believe there was foul play involved and seemed to be leaning towards the theory that the woman seen in Crosby's clearing may have been Heidi with an abductor. As time went on, more witnesses came forwards that placed Heidi and Urban in the Tararu Creek Road area. A local general store owner, Graham Manning, believed he had sold the couple some groceries in Thames. While checking out, the couple had pulled out a book of local maps and asked Graham to point out Tararu Creek and inquired how to get there. They told Graham that they were planning on hiking through the area before hitching a ride back into Thames. If this is what the couple did, then they had opened themselves up to a number of risks. 
Firstly, by leaving their car at Tararu Creek Road, full of valuables and equipment, they may have opened themselves up to being robbed and having their car stolen. As we know, this actually had happened. In the very least, the car had definitely been stolen and driven to Auckland. Secondly, there was a risk that something had happened to the couple on the track, whether foul play or some kind of accident. This was the risk that police theories had focused on. And the third risk was that the couple had completed their hike and that something had happened to them when they were hitchhiking back to Thames. In the middle of June 1989, the families of Heidi and Irvin flew to Auckland to be close to where their loved ones were last seen. They were understandably devastated by everything that had taken place. Also, at around this time, Detective John Hughes told the media the investigation had information privy to the investigation team indicated a homicide rather than an accident. Also, in June 1989, another witness came forwards. 16-year-old student Jason Donald called the police and reported that he had stumbled across a campsite in Crosby's Clearing on the day that the Swedish couple was thought to have gone missing. Jason was on a hunting trip with a friend when they stumbled across a blue tent, which was similar to the one seen by John Cassidy and Mel North with the couple. There was no visible sign of life at the campsite, but there was still warm embers from a fire. Jason unzipped the tent and found a note written in black pen which said, quote, I'm tired of waiting for you, so I've gone for a walk and will see you tonight or tomorrow. If anybody finds this tent, do not vandal as it's all I've got. Signed, Pat Kelly. The reason this information became important to police was because it pointed them in the direction of a suspect. The name Pat Kelly was a name known to the police. It was a pseudonym commonly used by a man who was on the run for a rape charge, David Tamaheri. David was known to use this pseudonym throughout his time on the run and it helped police to figure out where he had been. In the final week of June 1989, a Swedish journalist, Peter Svensson, who was following and reporting on the case for the Expressen newspaper, received a call from a reader. Hoken Bokel informed Peter that he had seen a photo of the missing couple's Subaru and he had information he needed to pass on. Svensson advised Hoken to share his information with police and detectives arranged to meet him in the Swedish town of Norrköping to conduct an interview. Hoken had been travelling in New Zealand around the same time as the missing couple and had arrived in the Thames area on the 9th of April 1989. He had stayed at some low-budget accommodation in Thames named the Sunkissed Lodge. He had made friends with a Canadian tourist named Anita Lebrec, and the pair had wanted to take a tour through the Coromandel Peninsula, but had no means of transportation. On the 10th of April 1989, a man from the lodge offered to take them on a tour, providing they pay for his room for the night and petrol for the trip. The man gave the name Pat and was driving a Subaru, with a bull bar exactly the same as the one he had seen in the news article about the missing Swedish couple. They went to the petrol station, where Hocken paid for fuel, and then they went back to the lodge to pick up Anita, as well as a third guest at the lodge, a Swedish girl. When asked to describe what Pat looked like, 
Hocken described him as approximately 30 to 35 years old, 180 centimetres tall, with dark, thick hair. He was nice, and Hocken was impressed by his explanations and pronunciations of Maori places and names. The car was definitely a white Subaru with the bull bar in the front. Police asked the manager at the Sunkiss Lodge to look through their records to figure out who had stayed at the lodge during the time that the Swedish couple went missing. They could see that Hoken had checked in on the 9th and left on the 12th, as he had told police. A man named Pat Kelly checked in on the 10th and left on the 12th, which obviously matched Hoken's account of what had happened. Police felt that this Pat Kelly that stayed at the Sunkiss Lodge was definitely David Tamahiri using his pseudonym. The manager could remember the man, Pat Kelly, and recalled his description to the police. He was a Caucasian-looking male, approximately 35 years old, with a dark complexion and dark hair, a moustache and a medium build. Hi guys, this is Bill and Harry from the True Crime Sisters podcast, and we wanted to tell you about our favourite streaming service, Hey You. Hey You is the place to stream true crime docu-series whenever and wherever you want. Piece together real-life crimes with a brand new library of content, now streaming on Hey You. Explore the disappearances of Natalie Holloway and Maura Murray. Gain insight into the psyche of one of history's most infamous serial killers, Jeffrey Dahmer. Delve into puzzling cases where the defendants claim their innocence with falsely convicted host Brian Banks. Then join Solely Dad O'Brien as she pulls back the curtain on a wide range of shocking cases, including OJ Simpson, the Slenderman attacks and the Wonderland murders. Crack these real-life cases and many more on Hey You. Head to heyyou.com or download the app today to start your 30-day free trial. Hey You, reality on demand. So now that police had David's name as a potential suspect, they needed to see what he had to say for himself. David told police that on the afternoon of the 10th of April 1989, he had hiked up Tararoo Creek Road with the intention of continuing up to Crosby's Clearing. He said that he found a Subaru station wagon at the beginning of the track, which he decided he wanted to steal. He inspected the exhaust pipe to see if the occupants were nearby and noted that it was warm. He found some number eight wires from a fence close by and bent it. He then used it to flick open the toggle door. He said that he then found a set of keys in the glove box and used them to steal the car. He said that he dumped out some clothing that he had found in the car before driving off with it and checking into the sun-kissed backpacker's lodge under the pseudonym Pat Kelly. He admitted that he had heard some guests at the lodge talking about wanting a tour of the Coromandel Peninsula and he had offered to take them. He confirmed that he took one Swedish man, one Canadian woman and another Swedish woman on a tour before taking the Swedish woman, Gabrielle Staub, to Auckland the next day. He says that he then dumped the car in Auckland and stole all of Heidi and Urban's valuables. He went to the Harmony House pawn shop in Auckland and sold their belongings for $100. 
In July 1989, detectives went through phone records from the time period that Pat Kelly stayed at the Sunkiss Lodge. They needed hard evidence that Pat Kelly was definitely David Tamahiri. Pat Kelly had made a phone call to an address in Mount Roskill in Auckland. When police made contact with the occupant at the address, it was a tenant who had only just moved in. However, when they spoke to the landlord, he confirmed that the, that the previous tenants were David Tamahiri and his wife, Christine. When they went to visit Christine, one of the police noticed a green jacket sitting on a chair and believed that it was identical to the one that belonged to the missing Swedish couple. When asked, Christine confirmed that David had recently bought the jacket home and given it to one of their sons. She also confirmed that she knew that he had stayed at a backpacker's in Thames while trying to outrun his rape charge. She told police that while David could be a great husband and father, when he drank he became a different and very volatile person. Police seized a number of items from the Tamahiri home, and it was at this point that David Tamahiri became the prime suspect in the presumed murders of Heidi Parkinen and Sven Urban Hoagland. By the time he became the prime suspect in the disappearance of the Swedish couple, he was serving time for his rape sentence at Mount Eden Prison. Lead detective John Hughes and three of his team visited David Tamahiri at the Mount Eden Prison Conference Room for an interview. Initially, David denied stealing the Subaru, but after some pressing from police officers, he admitted he stole it from Tararu Creek Road. When one of the detectives suggested that David had killed the occupants of the Subaru and knew it wouldn't be reported as stolen, David strongly denied it. He said, No way. I have nothing to do with that. If you want to charge me, charge me. He openly admitted to being the one to steal the car, but strongly denied having anything to do with the disappearance of Heidi and Urban. Police didn't have enough evidence against David to charge him with murder, but they did decide to charge him with unlawfully taking the couple's car and theft of the car's contents. According to the police, David seemed happy about this charge. On paper, David Tamahiri seemed like an ideal suspect. He had been convicted of manslaughter in the past, as well as rape and robbery. He was also confirmed to be in the same area as the two missing Swedish tourists at the same time that they disappeared. However, some people believe that the police built their case around Tamahiri rather than going where the evidence led them. It wasn't long after he became a suspect that Tamahiri's face became public. The media did not keep his identity a secret. David appeared briefly in court for the theft charges and was remanded in custody to appear in the Thames District Court on the 26th of July 1989. After hearing from David about what he did after dumping the couple's car, detectives went to the Harmony House pawn shop to try and find the couple's belongings. Some of the items were still there and some had sold recently, but they were able to track them down. One backpack was as far away as England. Police publicly stated that they were concentrating their resources on identifying what David was doing and his whereabouts while he was down on the Coromandel Peninsula. They also put out a public plea for more information about a couple seen camping at Crosby's Clearing the weekend that Heidi and Urban disappeared. The Maori man and European woman seen by Mel North 
and John Cassidy. So just quickly on David Tamahiri's prior convictions, in 1972, when he was 18 years old, he was convicted of killing an Auckland woman, 23-year-old Mary Barcham. Mary was working in a strip club at the time and died when David Tamahiri hit her in the head with a rifle. He was convicted of manslaughter for her death, so obviously the jury didn't believe that his intention was to kill her. In April 1986, Tamahiri broke into the house of a 47-year-old Auckland woman and sexually assaulted and threatened to kill her over a six-hour period. In 1992, he would also be found guilty of assaulting a 62-year-old woman in her home back in 1985. So clearly David is a very violent man. This is proven by his past behaviour, but when it comes to the disappearance of Heidi and Urban, many people were and still are not convinced of his guilt. The Crown case revolved around purely circumstantial evidence. As we know, when enough circumstantial facts connect together, they can create a body of evidence that is strong enough to result in proof beyond a reasonable doubt. When it came to the case against David, the judge, Justice Tompkins, used an analogy about a rope to explain it to the jury. He said, quote, It's like a rope made of a number of strands. Do the strands of evidence have sufficient integrity on their own that when woven into a rope, they are strong enough to hang Tamahiri on? In Ian Weishart's book, he states that the Crown case comes down to the following strands of evidence the Crosby's clearing sighting of a couple that police believed could be David Tamahiri and Heidi Parkinen at approximately 3pm on Saturday the 18th of April 1989, secret witness testimony which would come out at trial and which we will mention soon in this episode, the Crown's perception that David Tamahiri couldn't have broken into the Subaru using a piece of wire coupled with his obvious and blatant use of the vehicle, David's link to the couple's belongings, which according to the prosecution included Urban's watch and Heidi's slashed up underwear. So we're going to discuss the witness statements of Cassidy and North a bit more. But first, let's talk about some statistics about eyewitness testimony. According to controlled experiments and studies of actual real-life identifications, approximately one-third of the time eyewitness testimonies are wrong. That is, incorrect identification rates occur approximately 33% of the time. Commonly, the first statement given by a witness is thought to be the most accurate, as it is the one that occurred closest to the fact. Over time, memories can change and skew. In initial police statements by Cassidy and North, the couple they spotted at Crosby's Clearing didn't seem to match up with being David Tamahiri and Heidi Parkinen. Cassidy was initially sure that the man he saw was clean-shaven, whereas David Tamahiri had a large moustache. He remembered that the girl wore New Zealand-made Paraflex lightweight hiking boots, and there was absolutely no evidence that Heidi had ever purchased or owned boots like this. When shown the picture of Heidi, he believed the woman he saw looked older and thinner in the face. Despite this, police were sure that Cassidy and North had stumbled across David holding Heidi hostage, despite the girl not having any restraints. Initially, when shown a police lineup of suspect pictures, 
Cassidy rejected them, saying that none of them looked like the man he saw. Included in that was a picture of David. Over time, and many interactions with the police, it appeared that Cassidy's memory was changing about what he had seen, either purposely or not. Eventually, his statement changed completely, and he said, quote, Having seen Tamahiri, I am now positive that he is the male person I met at Crosby's clearing on the afternoon of the 8th of April last year. It took longer for Mel North to change his statement, but eventually his would change too. In his fourth statement, he said, quote, At the Thames Court, I observed a person who I now know as David Tamahari. I saw this person on three occasions and was able to draw a conclusion that David Tamahari was the same person who both myself and John Cassidy had spoken with at Crosby's settlement area on April 8th. It was clear that he still had a small amount of doubt, though, when he added to his statement, quote, After seeing this person, I am 90% sure he was the man at Crosby's. It seemed to some people that the more time the witnesses spent with police, the more their statements changed from what they were originally. As well as this, police acted against the normal protocol by letting the men review each other's statements which we now know can contaminate a person's memories about what happened. It seems that Justice Tompkins also had some concerns about the case hinging on the two men's statements. Pointing out to the jury how important this evidence was, he said, quote, It is the Crosby's sightings that is probably one of the most important, or the most important issue. He pressed them to be sure that the Crown had proven that the man was David and that the woman was Heidi. The prosecution also called in a number of secret witnesses or fellow criminals to testify against David, all for some promise of potential reduced sentences. Secret witness A was a convicted heroin trafficker who was facing a potential life sentence for importing millions of dollars worth of heroin into New Zealand. He hoped that by informing for the police he would be given a lesser sentence. According to witness A, David Tamahiri had opened up to him when the men were in adjacent cells at Mount Eden Prison. According to witness A, Tamahiri had told him that he met Heidi and Urban at approximately 9.30am on the Saturday in the bush on the track. He said they exchanged hellos and the Swedish couple apparently accepted an offer from Tamahiri and his mates to act as tour guides. According to witness A, he asked Tamahiri, when did you rape them and attack them? He said Tamahiri told him explicit details about sexual assaults on the young couple that he and his mates had perpetrated against them. Some of the details that the witnesses gave were so disgusting that the jury could barely bear to hear them. Secret witness B was also an inmate at Mount Eden Prison and he said that he met David outside the prison chapel when the topic of the missing Swedish tourists came up. According to witness B, David bragged about killing the Swedish couple and cutting them up. A third jailhouse snitch was secret witness C, who testified that David confessed to him that he had beat Urban to death with a lump of wood and dumped both his and Heidi's bodies at sea. On Monday the 3rd of December, 1990, at approximately 3.10pm, the jury retired to deliberate on the case. After three days, they reached a verdict 
and found David Tamahiri guilty of the murders of Heidi Parkinen and Sven Urban Hoagland. Almost one year later, on the 10th of October 1991, there was a development in the case. Police received a phone call from a pig hunter from the Coromandel Peninsula, 73 kilometres away from Crosby's Clearing. His son had stumbled across human remains while pig hunting. The remains were found in an area commonly frequented by cannabis growers. When police examined the remains, they noted that there was a human skeleton still wearing red pants and a black shirt. It didn't look like there had been any attempt to hide or cover the body. By 8.50am the following day, pathologists and police had arrived at the Coromandel to investigate the scene. On first glance, there were no visible major injuries to the skeleton, apart from signs of trampling by cattle. The skeleton was wearing a watch, identical to the one David had supposedly stolen from Urban. On the skeleton's finger was a wedding band engraved with Heidi, 2986. There was little doubt that these were the remains of Sven Urban Hoagland. Immediately, Detective John Hughes wanted to know whether Tamahiri had any connection to the man who had found the remains. He didn't. Crime scene analysts discovered that Urban was either unconscious or already deceased when his body was left in the position that it was found. This was evident by the fact that the body had been dragged and the position of the body itself as well as the clothing obviously indicated this. Forensic analysis of Urban's clothing revealed that his death was probably a violent one. His clothing had cuts to the neck area that were consistent with a knife, which experts would say indicated violent, hacking stab wounds. The red shorts also had stab wounds, and that would have been to the groin and upper right leg. The neck bones were consistent with forensic findings with nicks and cuts being found. Most disturbingly, Damage to the spinal cord revealed that whoever had killed Irvin had likely tried to decapitate him. So now the question was, if David Tamahiri killed Sven Urban Hoagland at Crosby's Clearing, how did his body end up 73 kilometres away in deep bush? After Urban's body was found, a search commenced in the area for any sign of Heidi, but sadly no trace of her was found and more questions than answers remained. It quickly became clear that the secret witnesses called to testify against David Tamahiri had been lying, and in 1995, secret witness C signed a sworn affidavit retracting his evidence against David Tamahiri. He stated that he had been offered $100,000 to testify against him using evidence that had been spoon-fed to him by the police. In May 2017, an experienced bushman, Alan Ford, was hiking through the Coromandel about 15 kilometres away from where Urban's body was found when he came across an old plastic bag containing multiple pairs of decaying women's leggings. He was very concerned because the isolated location where the leggings were found was very rarely used by anyone but experienced hikers. Immediately, Heidi came to his mind. He remembered that another three bags of Heidi's clothing sorted by type had been found in 1989 near Tararoo Creek Track, 
and obviously this stood out as the leggings may have been sorted by type. He took the bag to the Wangamata Police Station on May 5, 2017. Two months later, Alan emailed the constable who he had handed the leggings into to follow up on what had happened. The constable replied that his superior had no interest in the leggings and if Alan didn't want them back, they would be destroyed. Alan could not believe this. Obviously, he thought they could have something to do with Heidi Parkinson's case and he said that he would take them back so that they wouldn't be destroyed. He was shocked soon after to learn that despite this, the bag of leggings had been destroyed. When police were questioned about this, they said that they had visually examined the items and that they had been ruled out as being a part of the case. However, they declined to comment on how they made this examination. Dr Peter Kopp, one of New Zealand's top forensic scientists, has stated that he believes the handling and destruction of the potential evidence is appalling. Based on our research, Detective Hughes never stopped believing that David was guilty of the murders of Urban and Heidi. He thought that the likely theory given the discovery of the body was that David drove Heidi and Urban to the spot where the body was found, killed Urban, and then drove Heidi back to the Tararu area where he murdered her, despite the fact that her body was never found. Many people believe that David was wrongly suspected of the murders from the start. He appealed his convictions to the New Zealand Court of Appeal in 1992 after the discovery of Urban's body, but was rejected. He was rejected again in 1994. On the 3rd of November, 2010, David Tamahiri was granted bail for the murders of Heidi Parkinen and Sven Urban Hoagland. To this day, he claims that he is innocent of their murders. We may never know what happened to the lovely young couple who were looking for adventure overseas before settling into their lives together. Our thoughts go out to the families of Heidi Parkinen and Sven Urban Hoagland. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the True Crime Sisters podcast. And until next time, please stay safe.